This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tamar Biala about her new book, Dear Shuni, Contemporary Women's Midrash, published by Brandeis University Press in 2022. Dear Shuni is the first ever English edition of a historic collection of Midrashim, composed by Israeli women, which has been long anticipated by multiple American audiences, including synagogues, rabbinical seminaries, adult learning programs, Jewish educators, and scholars of gender and religion. Using the classical forms developed by the ancient rabbis, the contributors expressed their religious and moral thought and experience through innovative interpretations of scripture. The women writers from all denominations and beyond, of all political stripes and ethnic backgrounds, contribute their Torah to fill the missing half of the sacred Jewish bookshelf. Tamar, welcome to the show. Hi. Tamar, I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. So, I'm an Israeli I grew up in Be'er Sheva, which is in the Negev, in the south of Israel, a desert at least um, 50 years ago when I was a little in all meanings. For me, it was especially spiritual desert, unfortunately. And uh, I was longing to study Jewish studies in uh, a Talmud mainly when I was uh, growing up. There was uh, harsh... uh, attitude towards uh, girls that want to study men's uh, territory books. So uh, it took me years to get into the Beit Midrash and to study Talmud uh, as much as I could. Of course, it was uh, mainly after the army uh, in university and then in different pluralistic uh, Batei Midrash in Israel. And... uh, you know, after working so hard to get into the study, uh, realizing what the Talmud really is was heartbreaking. Uh, these days we have uh, Miriam and Zovin that uh, <laughs> clarifies to everyone how difficult it is for women to read the uh, Talmud. But I wasn't as feminist as I am now. So at the beginning, I just felt that something is wrong. But over the years, I studied women's studies, and I realized how patriarchal our tradition is, just like any other tradition in the world. But uh, since it's mine, and it's my identity, and it has impact on my um, the way I behave, and whatever I eat, and uh, how I behave, you know, in everything at life. So the pain grew, and grew, and um, in my early 30s, when I, the Jewish identity and the feminist identity were clashing as awful as it can, 
Um, I found a little notebook of Midrashim, which is a genre that was very popular 2,000 years ago. Um, that was the tool that uh, Chazal, our rabbis then, um, used to deal with the Bible that they didn't feel comfortable with either. So they invented the oral Torah um, and uh, invented that uh, tool, that vehicle of commentary uh, that has uh, its specific definitions uh, how it's working. And uh, they managed to change Judaism totally. Uh, the way they practiced Judaism was very far from the um, descriptions in the Bible. And the way their theology was different, um, their moral norms were different. And uh, I've, that little notebook that I found uh, when I was about 30 was by a, an Israeli woman that wrote Midrashim just as the rabbis. Her name is Rivka Lubitsch. I am an admirer of hers. And... Uh, but the message, the agenda was feminist. And it was extremely confusing for me because it was so Jewish, so such a, looks so traditional. And it had an Im immediate impact on me that it was a Torah. You know, it's a, it has some, has some authority on me. But the message was something that you can live with and you can grow with and um, be empowered by. So that was my uh, Har Sinai, my revelation. And uh, since then, um, the last 20 years, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Looking for uh, other Torah by women, collecting it, editing it, writing it myself, and uh, trying to begin the balancing of the Jewish bookshelf. <laughs> so Dershuni itself was first a, a collected, um, edited volume, t t uh, two volumes in Hebrew, and it became this one volume edited in English, which you, you edited as well. So what was the process from this two-volume edited collection in Hebrew to the one volume in English? So um, editing the first volume was the real uh, hard thing to do because um, the reactions that we received were horrible in Israel, that it's, uh, it's heresy, it's chutzpah, it's the beginning of the end. And on the other hand, there were also good reactions that uh, made it possible. Of course, the, the publishing house is the biggest publishing house in Israel, and they really, really wanted it. And uh, immediately there were rabbis that were teaching pieces of it in their shuls uh, and other institutions. I received emails the last 20 years, unbelievable emails from people really all around the world, uh, that th these volumes changed their lives. So the first collection just... Um, getting the pieces from the women. Women were scared to share these pieces. Sometimes their families didn't know about them. Others, they were just, uh, they didn't have self-confidence uh, to share their Torah with the world. They were never, uh, you know, raised with the confidence that uh, they worth and their Torah worth. worth. So uh, it was a very difficult process. The second volume was already a celebration. And uh, the third the English one um, was edit, was created for a specific audience that asked for it already, which was mainly rabbinical students of all denominations in America that have been teaching uh, in the decade that we spent uh, in Boston, and uh, also by many uh, adult learning groups that I was teaching, schools that I was invited to be a scholar-in-resident in, again, of all denominations and 
you know, now the word denomination is already ridiculous because there are so many things that don't even, uh, you know, don't have names by now. So uh, they really asked for it. And we, I chose only 50 pieces from the Hebrew books. And the d- big difference is that I added commentary to make it more easy to understand, more accessible. So writing commentary is a sin, as I see it, because Midrash is supposed to be open and uh, it's like poetry. You, you kill it with commentary. Um, but uh, I understood that I had to do it. And uh, now that I receive uh, the th- thank you letters that I receive from strangers by email all the time, um, makes me understand how important it was to really make it accessible to everyone. You don't have to know Hebrew. You don't have to know Jewish text before. But you have to be serious about it in order to understand it. So you mentioned the reception uh, across denominations. One of the things I read in your editor's introduction, which I thought was so powerful, is a story in which you mention saying the Shekh Yanu, a, a special prayer that Jews say at happy occasions. I would love you to share that story to our audience. I think it was just so powerful and speaks a lot to what this project really is all about for you and, and for everyone. So um, there is a ceremony, a traditional ceremony that is being, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of ritual that uh, Jews do when they finish studying a, t- a tractate of the Talmud. Uh, it's named Siyum, that you finish learning, but you make this promise to the specific tractate that you will get back to it in the future once again. And that you, it, it's it's with you. It it it, it had an impact on, on you. That's what you say in the Siyum. And you say Kaddish. And uh, there are different communities that add other things. So um, before we left Boston a few years ago, uh, one day uh, someone that I know from Boston sent me this email. Are you coming tonight to the Siyum party by Zoom? It was the... Um, COVID just broke uh, those days. And uh, it was a seum of the stud- rabbinical students in JTS uh, for the second volume of the Roshuni in Hebrew. They studied it all year with the Rabbi Diamond. Uh, and uh, they were planning to do the seum by Zoom because uh, everyone were at home those days. So I was a little bit insulted that I wasn't invited. On the other hand, I felt amazing that I don't have to mediate Dilshuni anymore after 20 years of intense missionary. So I sneaked into this Zoom party. The students taught, the several students taught the Midrashim that they loved the most and explained why. And uh, they did the traditional text in Aramaic that you say the goodbye to the attracted and promising to get back to it. But they said it until Shuni. And you can imagine that uh, my throat was getting full and full and I, I couldn't believe that I'm experiencing this and nobody knew that I'm there. And then they started, they said the Kaddish de Rabbanan, they were singing Nigunim. There were a lot of people, I guess, family members, their friends. And before they finished, I asked, can I say something? And I blessed um, this bracha, this shechianu v'kimanu b'shemu v'malchut, the real blessing mentioning uh, the name of God. And, uh, you know, I felt like I, I'll never reach such a, <laughs> a moment again in my life. It's, it's not a matter of a dream that comes true. It's 
I know that Judaism is different now. It's it's kadosh. It's holy for these uh, new friends of mine. I don't know how to say to these people that will teach it as a holy book, holy scriptures in their communities. And uh, I'm always saying that I did Dilshuni for my daughters. That it, I don't know if they would want to be a Jewish, if they would like to be, uh, if they would like to study Torah during their lives. But they won't be able to use the excuse <laughs> that there is no women's Torah in Judaism. That won't be the reason for them to, if they want to quit, to quit. I really hope that uh, when they feel in pain, they will go to these texts and get empowered and comforted by them. That's very impactful. Uh, we were speaking before before the interview started that I have a young daughter, and I said that this will certainly be on her bookshelf, and we'll be reading it to her, and we'll hope that she'll read it for, for inspiration. In the introduction, um, not your introduction, but the other introduction by Tamara Kadari, she positions Midrash within its historical and exegetical context. How does she view Midrash and its recent return amongst women? Do you agree with her depiction? Do you have other things to add to what she had to say about the development of Midrash and how it came back? Can you explain the question more? Yeah, sure. In in uh, Kadari's introduction, she she just gives a bit of history of, of, of Midrash and, and how it was used, how the rabbis use certain tools. I just wonder if, if you can give our listeners a bit of a taste of what you had to say. And and I don't think there'll be any big disputes regarding what you said, but if there's anything that you want to add any color to her introduction about what are the different tools, how Midrash has been used historically, and then specifically how it's come back amongst women over the, the recent decades. Yes, 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 yes. So... Um... When the rabbis developed that vehicle, literary vehicle, that was really a political and theological vehicle, um, what they did was playing games with the words of the Bible, uh, either opening um, this um, uh, the word revach. Um, You're giving some space. Space between words and telling us what happened in between and what people really felt behind the scenes and adding stories or playing with the words in a way that um, enable other meanings to pop up from the words because Hebrew is a magical language. The roots, each word has a root, but if you change the uh, order of the letters of the root, you get other meanings. So they read again the Bible and changed the colors, changed the atmosphere, changed the moral uh, messages um, and, and erased as if some of the um, mitzvot by making them impossible to do when they didn't want them or portraying a different face of God that doesn't appear in the Bible but appears in their experiences. So these women that entered Batei Midrash, some of them grew up religious, some of them are totally secular, um, and of course, everything that in between. All these women spent some time in Batei Midrash and learned trick, learned how these things are being written. How the, there, there's a set of um, literary vehicles. Um, for instance, if there's a word that appears in one story or... Uh, law and appears somewhere totally different in the Bible. It can be 10 books afterwards in a totally different setting, but the root is the same, especially if these words unique in the, in both books. So they 
said that they throw light at each other. There is some connection between the stories and the law and the story or the laws. And you have, you can, they teach you, they add some meaning to, to each other. So this is a very popular game. Or another thing is uh, to take two or three words that are connected, uh, one after the other, mix the letters and create new words from them. Uh, or uh, there's a whole set. Um, if something, uh, um, so these la- these women learned these tools, and each of them separately played the game. I got to, to each of them separately, and I had to convince each of them separately to give me her materials and to promise her that she's not the only crazy woman. Um, that was a process that took years. Uh, the first book I did with a friend. Um, the interesting thing is that I had a little collection of women's midrash. I also translated some American women's midrash, which is very different from the Hebrew, but that's what I had. And I've been teaching in Israel in many places this bundle of midrashim. No matter what I was paid to teach, I would always bring something by women. It's a little scandal, but I was a real missionary. And in one of these places in a faraway city, uh, in the end of the talk, a, a woman that I didn't know came and told me, guess what? I know that it's all true. I know that it's a phenomenon because I've noticed it and I have a different uh, bundle, a different uh, sack of uh, midrashim by women. So finding each other uh, made me feel more normal and uh, that I'm not, uh, you know, I, I also wasn't sure that I'm not doing a sin. It took me a long time to be sure that I'm a good girl and I'm adding something good to Judaism and not ruining it as many of my family members and other friends were saying. So with her, we went to the publishing house and they were very happy to do this. So in this case that you just mentioned, there's there's a lot of, of hope and, and there's happiness because people are receiving your work and the work of other women writing these midrashim in a very positive way. You also said before that it hasn't been all happy and it hasn't been a fully smooth, smoothly paved road because there have been rabbis, there have been establishments who have pushed back and who have described your work and the work of others as sinful, as problematic, as something that, that shouldn't be done. So how have you handled the, these critiques? Have you just ignored it? Have you taken any of it to heart? Have, have you thought that maybe we need to start having bigger, better conversations? How have you looked at these types of attacks and critiques um, over over your career? Um, the first time I taught was, uh, I was very, I was, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago. Um, it was an elderly group in Jerusalem that studied already 40 years together every month. <laughs> I brought my mother with me. She's a nurse. I thought they'll get a heart attack. I'm not joking. They were screaming harshly at me, but they loved the texts. So I've noticed the ambivalence that it really empowers people. They love, love, love the text, but they couldn't stand the word Midrash. Um, at some point when Nechama um, Weingart and Mintz that edited the first volume with me, at some point we were so scared that we asked the publishing house, maybe we can change the name of the genre and, and invent a new genre in Judaism. And, that, and they said, no, 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 the contract is on women's midrash. They wanted the provocation. So 
we went back to the original idea. And eventually, um, I'll tell you, I'll mention one email that I received many after the first volume came out. And it will show you why I had the confidence to go on working on it. Um, it was from an American rabbi woman. I didn't even know the phenomenon of women rabbis so much <laughs> then. And uh, she wrote me that she came to visit Israel. She went to a bookstore to see what's new. She saw the book on the shelf. She started reading it, you know, beside the shelf. And she couldn't believe her eyes. She sat on the floor for hours read the whole book, cried the whole time in the store. And uh, she said that her, she, it totally changed her life. So, you know, after this email, I felt that uh, Baruch Hashem, it's exactly what was needed. And now I can tell you that a uh, few months ago, I was asked um, after teaching in America for so long uh, by the Seminario Rabinico, uh, in Argentina, they asked me to teach a course of uh, Dirshuni to their students because how come all the other rabbinical students know Dirshuni and <laughs> their students? So I'm teaching this course in Hebrew. Um, and uh, this is it. It's a, it's a fact that it's a part of a Jewish text now. That's great. That's really great to hear. I want to zoom in a little bit on, on the notion of um, canonicity, of the Jewish canon, because... Within Jewish studies, within the Jewish world, we, we love speaking about canon. Of course, there, there's the books of the Bible, which are part of the canon, and then those extra-canonical works, which didn't quite make it in. But I think also within the, the world of Midrash, there's at least a sense that, that, that certain works are canonical. So Midrash Rabbah, of course, would be a great example of uh, you know work put together over different periods, depending on the book, but you know over the, the, the first number of centuries of, of the Common Era. And I think many consider it to some degree part of the Midrashic canon. So for you, how do you view your work within that, that broader context? So is it part of the same canon? Is it in some ways different, some ways similar? What, what, what is, is your view on, on how it connects to the broader canon of Midrash? Um, I think it's already a part of the canon. <laughs> and if you'll go to Batei Midrash around Israel, at least the pluralistic ones, but not only, you'll find it on the shelf beside the Midrashei Rabbah, Midrashei Tanchuma. Um, and it's uh, it, fascinating that they put it there and not on a shelf of new feminist uh, writings or I don't know. Um, I also don't want to be a snob and to say that only this is considered as midrash and I'll be the gatekeeper and uh, say this yes and this not. This is not a feminist thing to do and this is also idiotic because Jews will decide eventually uh, what's in, what's out and how does it have to look. So, um, listen, we look backwards and we know that the, there was a big struggle whether uh, Song of Songs will be a part of the canon, whether Yechezkel will be a part of the canon. Can we see ourselves without these books now? And it was a process and it was a struggle. So it's up to the Jews whether they want to enjoy women's story and stay relevant to women, to 51% of the Jewish population or not. But actually these feminist midrashim or feminine because it has different voices. Um, they, they, I see that the men uh, that I teach enjoy it just the same, and they love it, and they, it gives so much, I forgot the word in English, um, reassurance 
to their intuitions and their needs and their insights. So it's for all of us. So you mentioned the, the feminine point of view, that, that part of, of, of the book is is incorporating a feminine point of view to, to Jewish texts. So what exactly is that, that feminine point of view? Of course, there's no one singular feminine point of view, but what are the aspects, what are the flavors of the feminist point of view that come out within this broader Midrashic work? It's a wonderful question. And I've been asking myself for the last 20 years with each piece, could it, could it, was the idea um, hovering around the Jewish uh, bookshelf before? Can I find it? At the beginning, I was really looking back and, and forth on different texts to see if, if it's totally original. And uh, I was asking myself all the time, is there a revuta? Is there something that was really uh, added by this voice that couldn't be heard before? And as you said, Jewish women don't think the same, just as Jewish men don't think. So it's the culture of uh, machloket, of uh, disagreement. (laughs) You can see they relate to the same character in the Bible and they analyze it and judge her uh, the opposite from each other. It's, It's fascinating. But what's feminine in our, first of all, the issues that women deal with that weren't dealt enough, if any, before. The screams all around uh, the book. For instance, of course, the, um, all the unjust in rabbinical courts, in Israel especially, but I know it happens in the other places too. Um, the women that do not receive their get, the, they can't get out of their marriage. Um, so they are fascinating midrashim on this, and bastardy, and mamzerut, and kids that were born to uh, from um, incest or from uh, women that as if betray their husbands. Sometimes they didn't; they they live separately from the husband that wouldn't wouldn't let them leave, uh, wouldn't give them get for twenty years, and they finally have a baby with someone that they really love, but the kid could never be married uh, in Israel, not the kid and not her or his children forever. So there are midrashim on this phenomena. Um, there are midrashim on the relationship between sisters or between mothers and daughters, mothers and uh, daughters and fathers. Uh, there are midrashim about women's sexuality, finally. After Chazal, we're talking about women's sexuality and ordering us and themselves too. Um, so many halachot and so many uh, shameful um, sayings on women and their bodies. So finally, there is uh, something that is being said by women from their experiences. Um, other topics is uh, there, there. There's new theology that didn't uh, appear before about the relationship with the divine and the divine itself someone is uh, feminine someone sometimes masculine but i'll give just one example um, there is a midrash on god's um miscarriages before she created this world this is something that uh, there are other midrashim on miscarriages too so these things not all the myth, you don't have to be feminine because you come from f- uh, a woman's body but Women's experiences appear, and especially the unjust that they go through in patriarchal society. 
You mentioned before that you're not the gatekeeper to women's midrash. What's in, what's out. I totally understand that. However, you have edited volumes at this point, the, the two Hebrew volumes and the one English volume. And in those cases, you needed, you needed to figure out what's going to fit and what's going to work. And, you know, you can't include everything because that's just the nature of books and, and the nature of edited volumes. So when you were thinking about what to include, and, and we can focus now on the English volume, how did you decide what's in and what's out? So the English volume, there is the component of um, uh, what can be easily translated because the games and words are so complicated and witty, but sometimes they just don't pass in the English. Also, there is a subgenre that is a mystical midrash. It's so deep, so beautiful, so complicated. I didn't bring any into the English uh, volume because it just all the magic uh, exploded when we started uh, working on them. So maybe next volume, I'll we'll be more sophisticated to know how to um, unlock this. Uh, uh, but uh, there were midrashim right from the first volume that I didn't like their theology. I didn't like their messages. They killed me actually. And it was a process for me to realize that, uh, fine, it's it's a different voice and it has the right, it works by the tool, it it works well as a midrash. They don't um, take shortcuts, It's everything is proved properly. So I have to deal, Chazal also, when you read midrashim, uh, some of them you identify immediately and you love them to pieces and others you can't understand who put them there and why. So maybe I'll give an example. On the first uh, Hebrew volume, we received a midrash. Uh, I didn't know most people, so we didn't have to do with anything, anything personal. I didn't know who, uh, the person who wrote it. And it, it's about a woman who's praying and the angels block her prayers and uh, are very rude to her. And the whole midrash was a game of two chapters of Tehillim, Psalms, She's quoting as if God uh, and answering herself in her mind, and she doesn't understand why, why, why the, her tefillot, her prayers are not accepted. It's very tragic, and I really disliked the midrash because it wasn't under, uh, There was no explanation to this um, reaction by the divine. And there was no way to do tshuva, to to do to return to God and to to fix your ways. Uh, and so I didn't understand what is it, what kind of theology. I thought it's not a Jewish theology. And I was working those days in Hartman Institute. I was teaching, and there was a new guy coming to work with us. Uh, he came to my home to you know I had to teach him the materials. And in the middle, he raised his head and he told me, "Are you the mm-hmm. one who do, who rejected?" so-and-so's midrash Um, and I said yes and you know I started uh, (laughs) uh, shivering and he said who are you to say what's a Jewish text and what's not what she feels is so is is a post-holocaust theology she can't understand why and she really put it I mean it's it's a very witty midrash but I just I couldn't stand the pain I believe maybe that's why I was blocked and I understood what mistake I did, and immediately we added it to the book. And later on, people told me, what an amazing midrash. Finally, someone is saying this. So, yeah, there were other midrashim, too, that were morally, I felt, 
uncomfortable with. And I, I had very long, uh, you know, emails back and forth with the writers. And I understood that uh, we judge differently the world. Women think different. They have different experiences. And this should be a collection, not Tamar Biala's book. It should be a women's book. Well, one of the other things that's quite interesting about this book is the translator of most of the English volume, um, except for the, the commentary part. And that translator is none other than the great professor... Yehuda Mercy, who also happens to be your husband. Um, so this is something which I find quite uh, quite intriguing, um, you know, th- th- this sort of relationship between the two of you um, within this literary context. So we would love to love to you, for you to, to tell us about how that went, what the experience was like. I know he's not far away, so we don't, we don't want to say anything too to, uh, damning, but what, what was that process like, that translation process with Professor Mirsky? <laughs> um... Well, it increased our love. <laughs> what can I say? I'm so grateful to him. Uh, Yehuda is with me right from the beginning. Before we got married already, he brought me uh, Midrashim from America and we would read them together. And uh, I helped him writing Midrashim. He never published them anywhere, but he taught them in family or sites that we're having. Um, we've been working tons, tons of hours. When, we, when I was teaching in America for years, Every night before I would teach, I would uh, squeeze from him new uh, translations. He was totally involved emotionally with this, with the revelation. And uh, I can tell you (laughs) that I helped him with his uh, books on Rav Kook just as well. So uh, we're we're doing things together. Thank God. What can I say? Really. That's great. It's 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 we totally inspiring. Totally each other's uh, work and thoughts. He can wake me up at two a.m. Not that I'm thrilled with this piece, but uh, just to consult about things. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned before that, especially with midrash, so much is 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 tied up in the words and in the Hebrew of of the Bible itself, and the nuances. And so, as you mentioned, that the commentary helps to to elucidate what exactly is going on with the interpretations, but it's, it's not an easy process to, to translate the, these things. And as always, but perhaps more so here, things can get lost in translation or things could get distorted or, or, or not as well understood in a translation. Were there any specific examples you can think of where translation was particularly difficult um, and that you had to think about or, or hone in order to, to make it work the best that it could? I can't think quickly now on something. I know that Yehuda struggled a lot, and also Ilana Kurshan, who translated my commentary. Um, I'll be honest with you, uh, since they worked on these things, um, I've been working in the last few years only in English and translating myself a lot. And uh, I think that the next volume I will translate because... uh, (laughs) I feel that I'm so attached to specific words and uh, I need even uh, different colors. And uh, so this is a different uh, conversation, maybe with them. A follow-up conversation. So one of the things about Midrash, and and I think you've touched on this to some degree, is that there's a very personal aspect that you're... You're looking at yourself, you're looking at what you're thinking, and you're connecting to the text. And of course, the other aspect there is, is that the text within a, a traditional Jewish context 
is, is the word of God, you know, filtered through the text, but it is a, a divine text. So, so I wonder from, from your perspective, and, and maybe you've heard things also from some of the other authors, how has this process of writing Midrash, how has it helped you both understand yourself as well as understand the divine? Okay. Um, one of the Midrash writers sent us few Midrashim. They are all translated in the English volume on incest. Um, she told me after a long period of uh, editing those Midrashim that it was the first time she dealt with this. Not that she experienced incest uh, herself, but she is uh, representing um I don't know how to say it in English. She's the chief um, lawyer in Jerusalem. Um, she works for the government to represent uh, kids who suffer from incest. She's in charge of all Jerusalem and the area. So she's been working on it for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And that was the first time she ever dealt with this emotionally when she worked on these midrashim. Her midrashim are very powerful and each of them echoes stories that uh, she dealt with. So she's very religious, and that was a key for her, a tool for her to speak in, an, in a language that uh, is deeply meaningful to her. Other uh, Midrash writer is uh, an OBGYN that uh, had to work with uh, patients, religious patients, that couldn't conceive because they wouldn't go to the, the, the day that they could have conceived was before they could go to the mikveh and have sex with their husbands. It's a halachic uh, problem, famous problem. Some of uh, the rabbis that she was working with were willing to work with her. Others wouldn't. And they would say, sorry, so these women won't have children. She was so frustrated, so she wrote a midrash about this, um, and that was her way to deal with the frustration that was killing her by then. Uh, in her midrash, the person, the woman that can't conceive because uh, the day that she can conceive is before the day she, that she can go to the mikveh, um, is talking straight to God and solves the problem between them and just uh, ignores 2,000 years of halachic tools to deal with this. It's a very problematic midrash. On the other hand, it shows the frustration and the despair. And maybe this is time to go back to some relationship, straight relationship between women and the divine. Um, I, there is this person that I admire to pieces that I mentioned, Rivka Lubitsch, that was a lawyer in rabbinic court and saw horrors, horrors there over the years. She wrote many midrashim about uh, unjust there, and I believe uh, it enabled her <laughs> to release some steam and be able to go back into those awful rooms and uh, keep screaming, mostly <laughs> with no uh, <laughs> good ending. Going back to, to Lubitsch, um, one of the things that comes up a number of times in a number of Midrashim is a literary character that, that she developed. Oh, I wonder if you could speak about a literary character and also if there are any other particular conventions, particular vehicles that have cropped up, that have been developed, which are specific or peculiar to women's Midrash. Yes, yes, yes. So Rivka invaded, uh, invented this character, Tanot, uh, which is the soul of the daughter of Jephthah. 
uh, in Hebrew, uh, it is uh, there's a the word tanot appears in the Bible when it, it describes how before the father Jephthah killed, sacrificed his daughter, he enabled her to go uh, four days to mourn on her life that she's losing and uh, her virginity with her friends so the pasuk says um that uh, and after she died her girlfriends would um, mourn for her um and the word to mourn is letanot but it sounds like they're going to visit her to to be with her so um rivka invented this character the soul of uh batiftach that is named tanot and she has a parallel role to a spiritual uh persona in chazal that the rabbis are using the soul of um eliyahu anavi the prophet elijah that uh, sometimes they consult with him he's meditating between the divine and them so tanot is doing it to the daughters of Israel, um, and she is challenging the divine with the feminist uh, horrible questions that they, they ask, and Nabach has to bring the answers and to see how they are uh, being, uh, if they are satisfying enough. So this is um, such a, an important figure that other women adopted in, in the second volume, and now it's being used. Uh, the funny thing is that um, what, a few of my students from the first courses that I've been teaching in Hebrew college a decade ago. Now we're teaching in America Dirshuni uh, for many different audiences. Uh, one of them, of these groups, uh, there is uh, one of the participants fell in love with this uh, person, Tanot, and made t-shirts for her. And he sells those t-shirts with that. So it's really funny how the culture has all its... Uh, um, Osher, wealth in it. Um, another phenomenon that uh, is the Beit Midrash Shel Bruria. It's also was invented by Rivka, and uh, it's parallel to Batei Midrash, school of studies in uh, in the Talmud. So now there is a, this school of study of women, and. Uh, there are very, you can imagine, uh, intense uh, uh, fights and conversations there. Women don't think alike. And by other women, there is uh, a midrash of the Beit Midrashah Shel Bruria, the house of study of Bruria, uh, as opposed to the house of study of Ima Shalom, a different character, a woman. So there are different uh, schools of thought, of feminist uh, Jewish thought already in the books themselves. Um it's beautiful to see what was so needed and how these things that pop up and immediately other people can catch it and use it. In the English volume, you have seven midrashim that you yourself have wrote and would love to, to discuss any number of them and also just to, to understand your process. So you sit down, you've got the wealth of the Bible in front of you, you've got all these techniques where do you start? How do you begin to write Midrash? And, and, what, and how do you get to the end product? They always begin with a wound, you know, with pain. Uh, for me, I hope for other women, maybe they can work also from other places. But um, for me, there's something that is uh, not rotten in me, but, you know, um, for a long time, itching. And uh, I don't know how to describe exactly, but words uh, appears in my... <laughs> Uh, quotes. I know, you know, everyone that studied the Bible for a long time. So 
expressions and words and verses pop up to their minds. Uh, I can tell you about one Midrash. There's a chapter in Yechezkel, Ezekiel, that is so horrible as it's, it's the image that many of the prophets use to describe the relationship between the divine and the, the children of Israel is that the divine is the male and he married the, the Jewish people as the female and she betrayed the divine and the punishments that she will get for this and how disappointing, uh, how awful she is. So they use it a lot, but there is one chapter in Ezekiel that is so awful, it contains dozens and dozens and dozens of verses describing um, the sexual uh, punishments that she will get for her disgusting sexual behavior. When you read it clearly, I want, it sounds like Ezekiel was in a psychotic attack because it's so extreme, so vulgar, so it's, it's, it, it took it to extreme, unbelievable extreme. So I read it years ago, and that was so horrible that if I wouldn't be a Jew anymore, it would be because of this chapter. So insulting, so humiliating, and, and I didn't feel that there is any way, any possible way to understand why it's there. So it took me maybe a decade until one year I studied um, in the Beit Midrash Elul in Jerusalem. It's a very creative Beit Midrash. Everyone is writing and doing art uh, there. And uh, we were studying for the whole year, the Song of Songs. And towards the end of the year, finally, I wrote a Midrash and I, made, I, it, I understood why Ezekiel is in the Bible thanks to Song of Songs. They just show the opposite ways that people run their uh, love lives. And each of them, you can understand better if you understand the other one, if you have the other one in the, it's so realistic and so hot, but this is life. Life has these extremes. So um, without that Midrash, I don't know what would happen to me today. We're recording this interview now on September 6th, and it's not long before the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And within the book, you, you have a number of different sections, and one of the sections connects actually to, to the Jewish calendar. And so either from that section or anywhere in the book, are there any particular lessons, particular interpretations, Midrashim, that could be interesting, could be helpful, could be inspiring for our listeners uh, as we approach the high holidays? Sure, very much. Um, so the binding of Isaac, uh, of course, um, Chazal, the rabbis themselves, uh, wanted to hear the voice of Sarah. So they wrote beautiful, uh, Midrashim, but they wrote it from their perspective. <laughs> and, uh, women sent over the years Midrashim on that story, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's it, it's tearing you. Doesn't matter. It, it tore Jews until today, and it will keep tearing us. And uh, they they sent a lot of midrashim, and they said new things. The idea was really to put only midrashim that bring some a new voice. So uh, most of the midrashim were very empathic. 
to Sarah and invented the stories that probably happened to her. But not all. There were also voices that said that she was probably the same with Abraham, just as Jezebel was the same with uh, Achav, her husband, theologically and morally. Um, and uh, there is new theology in those midrashim about the relationship between Abraham and the divine and what happened to the divine while Abraham was willing uh, to sacrifice a child. So uh, this is, uh, it's really fantastic to communities to study. I, I put, I think, maybe only three of them in the English volume, but there are others, m many more in both Hebrew volumes. And I have translated them all in English. So if anyone wants, so they can turn to me and I can send it by mail. And also I have to say there is one Midrash in English that was written by some conservative rabbi woman maybe 30 years ago or 40 years ago, that Yehuda let me see when we were still dating, that left such an impression on me forever, forever and ever. Um, so do you want me to tell you a little bit about that Midrash? It's not in Dirshuni, but it works. <laughs> and it's by woman, by woman. So in her Midrash, she describes, um, her name is Hannah Thompson, and uh, it appeared in the, um, I forgot the name of the journal that her text, maybe Kerem, it was once a literary American uh, journal. And it describes how Sarah wakes up in the morning and uh, they were already gone. She remembers that Abraham had a conversation with a divine last night but uh, God knew that she won't cooperate, so he made her fall asleep. And when she wakes up, it's too late. So she's terrified. She's going to the same place where Abraham had a conversation and calls God until God's appear and has a conversation with the divine and asks, what's that supposed to be? What's going to happen? And the divine says, um, did Abraham tell you um, about the awful future that your children are going to have the 400 years in Egypt and so she said um, yes and did he tell you about that and that and the divine describes the suffer that Jews will have in history and then at some point of course she says no, no I didn't know about that and then there's a description of the holocaust of the pile of bodies and the divine says I sent him to sacrifice Isaac in order to prevent all this suffering and uh, Sarah is so shocked and, see, and she asks, so why, what good would it be to the world if the Jews will exist? And the divine is fair enough and is saying, what good the Jews can bring to the world? It's very uh, short and beautiful, this piece <laughs> and that part. And then um, Sarah understands that the divine put her now in the place of Abraham last night. She can stop the Akedah, stop the sacrifice and keep Isaac alive and keep all the future pain. Or she can let Abraham sacrifice the kid and do as if uh, miscarriage and uh, spare the horrors. And she sees those images in her head and she screams, stop like the angel and Abraham stops and uh, and God 
is blessing her at the spot and at the moment with similar blessing to the one that he blessed Avraham after the Akedah with just one change. Instead of saying um, that the, the, all this good is will be given to you because you didn't spare your only beloved child from me, it says you didn't spare your only beloved child from the world. And uh, that Midrash, Midrash left Sana really... I think it's uh, very important in my life uh, and all my belief in Midrash because that I translated into Hebrew many, many years ago. And before I worked on the first book, I was teaching it also in an American community because I had it in English. And people were relating to this. People came and told me in shuls after the talks, how they found themselves standing in similar dilemmas in life, whether to let their child die in the hospital after it was just born so physically sick or enable them to live or other horrible dilemmas. There was one young uh, Israeli woman uh, that uh, sent me an email after I gave a talk and read this midrash and she told me my bro- i just came woke up i don't know how to say came from a shiva on my father and my brother who died in the army so it was the first day after the shiva that she came to hear this talk and she said in the shiva i heard my neighbor asking my mother if you only knew when you gave birth to him that he will die like that would you give birth to him it was just the same dilemma. And the mother said, yes, of course I would. So this midrash helped people in such painful places. And I realized that uh, it's it's Torah, you know, this is it. It's a real Torah. And that's a great segue into one of my last questions. And that's Sepharia, the, the great collection of Jewish literature from the Bible, the, the Talmud and Midrash and, and way beyond. They, they continue to add new works. And one of the recent works over, over the past year, over, over the past number of months, is Dershuni in the Hebrew edition. So I'd love to, to understand how that happened, how, how Dershuni got to Safaria, and what it's been like, what it's been like for people to find it there, what you've heard about from, from, from it being there. What's that experience been like? Uh, so it's so it was just really maybe two months or even less ago. Um, it was a long process because uh, the rights were at the hands of the publishing house. So I told the publishing house that, of course, Sfaria uh, um, should have the, the rights. I, I don't need any money from anyone. I just need this Torah to be available for everyone because... Um, the publishing house didn't publish this, the, sec, the first volume F, um, again for a long time. And I received personally dozens of emails asking how people can get the first uh, volume. And I sent them all to the publishing house and they didn't know what to do. And eventually I think that solved the problem. But now it's available for all. I don't know. I, I'm sure Safaria paid a lot of money to the publishing house. I will always be grateful for them. But it's not really my book. It's not, you know, uh, a novel of mine or a poetry book of mine. It's really dozens of women in, in each volume. And uh, it's it's now for everyone. Baruch Hashem, that's Faria were so... It, it was their idea and their effort. They're wonderful. 
definitely echo, echo that sentiment. I'm a big fan of, of the work that Safari is doing. So before we close with the famous New Books Network question, I want to know, is there anything that I've left out, anything else you want to add to, to share with the listeners? Yes, that, that we shouldn't be scared of writing more, even using other genres. It doesn't matter. Just Torah will stay alive if we keep it alive. <laughs> That's, uh, it took me time to understand that I'm the next, uh, how do you say, um, in the chain. I'm the next... Uh, yes. You know, it, 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 I'm in my 50s already. I can't wait anymore. I shouldn't wait for so long, but it's, uh, it's our responsibility. And it's such a pleasure, such a pleasure finally to feel belonged because your real soul is there. I don't have to twist myself any anymore to, to, to force myself to explain and to try to understand things that are morally wrong. Theologically, I don't feel them. It's, uh, it's finally something real. It's, it's really a great way to close off. Tomorrow, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to ask you the traditional closing question. What are you working on next? I'm working on something that I don't want to share at the moment. Um, I believe that if you Google me, you'll get to it somehow. But uh, I'm using a different strategy to deal with patriarchy in Judaism. It's very non-conventional, and uh, I need to gather more strength to come out to talk about it. Um, I think... uh, we have to use all the tools that we can in different, um, forgot the word again, um, fields or uh, all the strategies that we can use uh, to work quickly on Judaism to be more egalitarian because people leave because of this and I, I, I can't justify um, patriarchy anymore. So um, I hope that maybe next year I'll have more courage and you can interview me on the second, uh, on my new book. All right, I look forward. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Tamar Biala, author of Dear Shuni, published in 2022 by Brandeis University Press. Happy reading, my friends.